Hey, guys. Oh, it's good to be back. It's good to see some familiar faces. Um, so for those of you who have no idea who this man is that just walked out with the microphone, uh, my name's Adam, like Steve mentioned. Uh, I was part of the Scum of the Earth community for about 10 years, all the way through my 20s from the start of 2008 to the end of 2017. Uh, and I worked here for the final seven of those years and saw a lot of really great things and we had a lot of really great times. Um, about almost exactly two years ago, though, um, I felt that I needed to make a change, and so I gave him my, I don't know, four or five weeks notice or something, uh, preached one last final sermon, and said, hey, uh, maybe I'll be back sometime to guest preach. So today's the day. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, it feels good to be back in the pulpit or the you know, music stand or whatever this thing is. And a lot has happened in the past two years for my wife, Meg, and I, who couldn't be here tonight. We, uh, we moved out of this neighborhood, it used to be like, I think eight blocks from here was our apartment, and down into the Littleton and Centennial area, which is way closer to Denver Seminary, where, like Steve said, I am two months away from finally finishing grad school. I accept that applause. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a ride. Um, and in the meantime, we became parents. Um, our daughter, Rachel, is one of the greatest gifts that I was ever afraid to get. Because um, being a dad still scares the junk out of me on a regular basis, and it is so good. Um, and uh, to our very great surprise, God has made it just bizarrely clear uh, that he wants us to move down to Colorado Springs in January and buy a house. Um, it's just, it's insane, and it's happening. So that's my life. And it's so different than how I expected it to be, and so good. Um, that God has led me into things that I never would have chosen on my own, and I'm very glad that he did. And one of the things that I still find deeply, deeply weird is that for the past two years, I've part of it, been part of a church community that is not deeply, deeply weird. Um, it's actually really, really normal. Uh, and for a while, it was really freaking me out. Like, have I lost my edge? Um, so we're at a church now that has like a thousand people at three services um, with a highly structured children's ministry and a weekly liturgy and they have bulletins. Do you know what bulletins are? I had almost forgotten what bulletins are. They have you know, formal membership with membership classes that I took. That was weird. Um, their staff have job titles that are things like director of strategic development. And even though there are just a few sketchy looking weirdos like me there, then every service still during that um, take some time to get to know your neighbor thing that all the introverts hate. Um, I'm mostly shaking hands and chatting with uh, people who are, uh, you know, a room full of young professionals with perfect teeth wearing khakis that they wore voluntarily. It's very, very strange. And you know something? I belong. Weird as I am, different as I am from basically every single one of them, I belong in that church community in a way that I thought I would never belong anywhere except right here. And it's not that I didn't belong here and needed to go somewhere where I did fit in. I mean, I was here for a decade, for goodness sake. That's longer than like 95% of the people who walk through the doors. This place was home for me. I love this place. But as I went out here, I slowly began to realize that a Christian belongs because he or she belongs to Christ. I'm starting to discover a unity that goes deeper than you know, what bands we listen to or what we nerd out about or how we dress or how much money we don't have. Uh, and I'm starting bit by bit to understand the kind of unity that Jesus talked about in John 17, prayed about, actually. We'll have this up on the screen, I believe. 
where he, he prayed, my prayer is not for them, his 12 disciples, alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, Christians everywhere, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And skipping ahead a little bit, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So it's this kind of unity that I want to dig into together tonight. And like I always used to say and still do, uh, unless the Holy Spirit makes these words mean something in your heart and in your life, they just won't. I don't have that sort of power. Only God does. So take a minute just to, to listen to God and then to pray together with me before we dive in. Holy Spirit of Jesus, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for adopting us into this family. Um, thank you for, for saving us from all the futile ways we would spend our life. Thank you for showing us what it is to love and to be loved, to have a life that means something. Thank you for bringing us into that. Um, Lord, I, I, we love your word. We are so grateful for the gift of your word. And we want to get out of... Um, studying your word, whatever you want to get out of it, whatever you want us to get out of it. So, Lord, um, I pray that you would, you would use me in that way, um, that miraculous as it is, you would actually have something meaningful uh, come out of my mouth, um, that that only happens with you. So, God, please, uh, please help me to say things in ways that accomplish your goals, and anything that I say that doesn't come out in a way that glorifies you, I pray that you just strike it from people's memories. Um, Lord, be glorified tonight. Um, we love you. Amen. So, as, uh, as Steve mentioned, he, and he mentioned to me, um, I, I heard you guys have been connecting a lot of things to John 15. Um, and so he asked me to connect my sermon tonight to that too. And I was uh, praying and thinking a lot about it. And I felt like, weirdly strongly that God wanted me to talk to you about one specific thing. Uh, me being a... Uh, like stay-at-home dad like 35 hours a week and a guy in his final semester of grad school and working on buying a house, I have just loads of free time. So I thought, you know, I'll just, I'll just find some of my old sermons, I'll rework them, remix them a little bit, tie it into that piece of cake. It'll be great. Um, so I started doing that, found, found some that were actually pretty good fits. Um, and as I started writing, I just felt God being like, no, no, you're just supposed to write a new one. I was like, ah. So that, that's happening. Um, this is just one that is focused on John 15 and 17. Um, so here we go. Because sometimes following the Holy Spirit and his leading means that your plans don't happen. Uh, but spoiler warning, um, that's actually a good thing. So I was happy to hear about the John 15 connection because the, the poet in me loves that image so much. Like It's so simple, but there's so much in there. There's so much you can unpack. Um, I haven't been listening to the podcast lately, so I don't know what angles other preachers have been taking with that passage, but I know one I'm supposed to take, and it's mostly in verses 1 through 8, uh, so let's get those up on the screen. Thank you. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Um, here, Jesus is basically assuring his 12 disciples, look, I've done a lot of this work in you already over the past three years, so don't worry, you're not starting from scratch. 
Verse 4, if you're already in, then do what? Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So, for those of you keeping score, that is eight times in eight verses that Jesus says the word remain. Part of this is John's style as a writer. He really likes to repeat things, especially when Jesus made it clear that they were important. But still, that's, that's a lot of remaining. And it's the key to this passage, we're going to come back to it later. Uh, but first, because I know some of you might be new to the Bible, and frankly, I hope anytime there's a worship service, there are people who are new to the Bible, right? So, quick review. Vine, branches, fruit, Right? This is how grapes grow, really thick wooden vine that grows along a fence or a trellis or something like that, um, with a ton of smaller branch vines that sprout off it in every which direction, and if it's healthy, all of them are bearing fruit, which is this metaphor throughout the whole Bible, really common one for good stuff, right? Fruit is love, kindness, justice, glorifying God, making earth a little more like heaven. This is the fruit we're supposed to be letting the Holy Spirit uh, produce in us. Now, this image is foreign to us for a few reasons, and one of them uh, is because we are right here in the middle of a million-person major metropolitan area, not a lot of vineyards. Uh, Most of us, the only time that we see grapes on a regular basis is in the produce section at King's Supers. Um, So, yeah, not exactly in our wheelhouse. But the other reason why this seems sort of foreign is uh, in verse 5, the part where it says, where Jesus says, "'Apart from me, you can do nothing.'" America does not believe this. And by extension, the American church tends not to believe this. And between those two groups, that covers the whole room. Um, We tend to believe in this rugged individualism thing, right? This idea that a man or a woman can just strike out on their own and uh, work really hard and succeed with nothing but that hard work and a little luck. Uh, Now, as Christians, of course, we'd be quick to couch that and be like, well, I mean, hard work and and God, right? I mean, of course, and God. Um, But yes, mostly just me and God. And that is 100% opposite the message of the Bible from start to finish. Not only the Bible, but most cultures and civilizations on this planet have all understood something that we in the 21st century West seem to not really get, and it's that people actually need people. that we, we were created to have the default mode of being in community and that only in dire circumstances would you ever find yourself outside of that, disconnected, doing things on your own. And if you did, you try to fix that as soon as possible. I learned this week uh, about this, uh, this African term and concept, Ubuntu, which uh, it means a person is a person through other people. There's a lot of wisdom in that, and I mean biblical wisdom in that. And I'm not saying that we're a bunch of hermits. I mean, look at us. Here we are, all of us here together in this room, venturing outside our houses. 
but I am saying that we tend to view community as something that's really enjoyable, really good for our mental and emotional health, but not something that's absolutely vital for our spiritual health. Just as one example, we Americans don't usually make really big decisions as a community. Most of the time we make them alone, just us and God, um, sometimes accepting advice from a few close friends, family members, counselors, mentors, but ultimately we reserve the right to still make the decision on our own and then just tell people what we came up with. This has led to an awful lot of isolation, a lot of loneliness, and a lot of confusion. It's made us doubt collective ideas like this vine and branches business, but it's also made us need that more than ever before. We tend to read this metaphor of Jesus's the same way that we already live our lives. We make it in our image. We say, no, yeah, Lord, I, I believe you. I need to be connected to you or else I won't bear any fruit. Me alone, no good. Me and Jesus, all right, then we're fine. But that misses half of Jesus' point. Uh, here and throughout the rest of the New Testament, to say nothing of the Old. So, I know some of you are really visual people, so picture this, if you will. There's this big, thick, wooden grapevine draped over a fence where it's been growing for years and years and years. Then picture that vine totally without branches or grapes for about a dozen feet, dozen dozen yards in either direction, except for one little sprout. Now, that sprout is doing great. It's producing this big, gorgeous cluster of bright, green, tasty-looking grapes. It's doing great. And all the vine near that branch is completely bare. Just it and the vine. No one who understands how grapes are supposed to grow would ever call this healthy. Branches on a grapevine, they're supposed to grow together, just like we as Christians are. Not when it's convenient only, not only when it's easy, not only when we particularly like the other branches near us, but always. It's another communal, collective image for the way God designed our life to be lived, and it's far from the only one. Probably the most famous image for this in the Bible is Paul's image of the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Let's go there up on the screen. There we go. So in this letter, the one from which scum of the earth got its name, Paul is writing to a group of people who are being really, really individualistic, mostly just thinking of themselves, as I know I catch myself doing far more often than I'd like to admit. And the context right around this is people getting really puffed up about having the good spiritual gifts, the, the big flashy, amazing ones that make you look super cool, and other people don't. So here's Paul's response. He pours a lot of water down himself, and then he continues. Paraphrase. Really need to get something with a straw. So he compares different people and their giftings to different parts of the body. And he says, the eye cannot say to the hands, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Well, our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. 
If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So what's interesting to me here is that Paul doesn't say, you should be one body, members of another, deeply connected, unable to do life alone, which he could have said. And instead he says, you just are that. You are the body of Christ. He's not asking us to go from one thing to a completely different thing. He's challenging us to become who we are, who the Holy Spirit transformed us into from the moment that we first believed in Christ and turned to follow, follow him. One body united with each other in Jesus, as sure as the cells in your brain or your heart or your lungs are all united, part of one whole body. If we belong to Jesus, this is who we are. And it's also who we are meant to be and to keep on becoming. We keep striving toward this goal. And it's a goal so important that when Jesus only had a few last minutes with his disciples before being betrayed and murdered on a cross, this is one of the top things that he prayed for. Back in that passage from John 17, I read, I pray also, he said, for those who will believe in me, that all of them may be one, all of them. May they be brought to complete unity. The man's about to be publicly tortured to death, and this is what he's thinking about. It means that much to him. And I have to confess that sometimes, uh, more often than I'd like to admit, I don't care as much about that unity of all believers in the body of Christ, a.k.a. the church, as Jesus does. And there's reasons. We all have the reasons, right? We're jaded. We've been hurt by churches before. We've maybe felt excluded. That's why a lot of us ended up here, at this particular part of the global church, a part called scum. We've seen hypocritical church leaders. We've seen corrupt pastors, narcissist preachers who use the word of God to just bludgeon people with their opinions and puff up their own ego. We all know Christians, not even you know, official leaders, but just members of the church who have wounded us, whether they meant to or not maybe offended us, maybe just annoyed the crap out of us. Like, there's a reason that Paul had to say in Ephesians 4, 2, bear with one another in love, which, according to one commentary I read, literally means, in Christian love, put up with each other. I love that that's in the Bible. Because people are hard to put up with sometimes. Um, I know I can be. And because we have this American delusion that just me and Jesus is a viable way to live out our faith, we're tempted to either hold back and not totally commit to involvement in the church community that we're in right then, or to just not go at all. I mean, at least not to any of the ones full of people we'd have to put up with in love. It's a sad-looking grapevine that doesn't have every branch deeply connected to all the others. So this is a sermon for a few different groups of people. It's for you if you're here tonight just visiting, uh, not having a church community where your roots run deep. It's for you if you're here to just check out this Christianity thing and see whether it's different from that Americanized, rugged individual thing that you hear from pundits and televangelists spouting off about. It's for you if you're listening to this on the podcast later because you don't actually go to church anymore and you don't really see the point. 
And maybe most of all, it's for you if you love your church community so much that you couldn't imagine ever being part of a different one, even if you weren't here anymore. So this is something that I'm having to wrestle with, um, coming up on a move down to the springs, because I am a picky and prejudiced man in some ways, and I do not like the church as it exists in Colorado Springs. When I think of Springs Christianity, I think megachurches, which I do not like. I think comfortable suburban churches where people pay good money in the offering plate every week to be coddled and told what their itching ears want to hear. See, I told you I was prejudiced. It's, it's a problem. And even when my wife and I looked up this countercultural, you know, uh, Anabaptist Mennonite church down there, um, started listening to some of their sermons, it became painfully obvious very, very quickly that that particular church didn't actually care about having the Bible as their foundation, like, at all. It was horrifying. Radical community, working for justice, committed to nonviolence, like, how can you be right about so many things and get the most important thing wrong? But they do. So I don't know where we're going to end up. And I pray every day, and I mean every day lately, that God will prepare a place for us there, a church that's faithful in the truth, that loves really well, a place where we can serve and contribute in some way. But I don't know where that is yet. All I know right now is that if we're leaving our particular spots on the vine, then we have to be grafted into a different church community somewhere else on that same vine. Me and Jesus isn't going to cut it, even on the occasional day when that's all I want. People stop being part of a church for lots of reasons. Sometimes a family uh, starts uh, having kids and they go to a church where there's a program that'll help them to teach their children and disciple them as disciples of Jesus. Sometimes you get a new job, you get married, something makes you move out of your town or across the country. Sometimes God just tells you to go somewhere, so you go. And sometimes churches close their doors. These things happen all the time. If any of them happened to you or to this place, would you give up on church? Or would you put in the hard work of finding another place to put down roots to rejoin the body of Christ, the vine? So as a goth and a therapist, uh, I'm a big fan of existentialism, uh, which forces me to confront some big questions, ones like, if you were to die tomorrow, um, would you be proud of how you've lived your life? Or what would people say about you at your funeral? Uh, conveniently, you don't have to actually be dying to ask these questions and get an awful lot out of them. Um, as David Gibson says in his book on Ecclesiastes, preparing to die teaches us how to live. When we face the hard questions, even about outcomes that we may not end up facing, you know, like, what if I die young? And, well, maybe I don't. But asking those questions still help me to get more clarity on what really matters here and now. I'm not saying that any of the things that I mentioned will happen to you or to this place that I have loved for over a decade. But if, God forbid, Scum of the Earth Church ended, 
Or, if God called you away for any of a thousand reasons, what would you do? And maybe more importantly, why would you do it? What is the set of values that you would use to help you navigate your next steps? Would it be American consumerism, which asks, what product, what commodity of a religious experience do I want to buy? Is it laziness? Laziness that takes the path of least resistance straight to not putting in the hard work of getting deeply rooted and becoming a contributing member of a community? Could it be the pickiness that I fall into so often, which says, I don't want to commit to anything that isn't custom-tailored to my preferences? Or is it the Holy Spirit of Christ, which Scripture says makes all of us who follow him one? So in my own conversation with God through Scripture, which is how I like to think of reading the Bible, I've been reading through 1 Corinthians over the past several weeks, and because I am a giant nerd, I do so with a Bible in one hand and a commentary in the other, just push the glasses right up there, um, because I like that I can learn from people who have spent their entire career digging into the text and helping me to understand what's sort of behind the text, what meanings I might not get in my cultural context or, you know, in English, because I don't read the other things. And that's how I learned that in the last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul did a cool thing that you can really only see in the original Greek writing. Uh, He's talking to the legendarily horny Corinthians and telling them, look, you, you need to stop doing those things with your bodies. It insults God and it's toxic to you. And then in the last verse, he says, therefore honor God with your bodies, except that's not exactly what he wrote. In the Greek, apparently, Paul abruptly switches from plural, your bodies, to singular, your body. And he does it because he's talking about the body, as in the body of Christ, as in the church. So according to one commentator I was reading, it'd probably be a better translation of that to say, honor God with the church. We glorify the God who told the very first man it is not good for man to be alone when we refuse the cultural consumerism and the isolation of that me and Jesus approach to life and instead put down roots into an imperfect church community full of awkward, broken, obnoxious sinners like us and we commit to remain with the same covenant faithfulness that God has always shown us. Remaining is hard. For some of us, it's because we don't like to feel pinned down, you know, locked in, tied to one place for too long. I personally don't understand that. Maybe that's your experience. My experience is it's hard to remain somewhere because I want so much to have something in life stand still and not change and just be the way it is forever uh, because I live in a world of fantasy. And then when it does change, or I have to, I want to just say, all right, good game. I'm done. I'm done remaining somewhere because I tried it and I couldn't make it last forever, so screw it. I'm done. I'm not going to commit to remaining somewhere again because it hurt too much to pull up my roots last time. But in that case, what was I really rooted in? Was it a relationship with our Father who adopted us into his global family, the church? Or was it just a place that I was loyal to. One group of friends, a congregation of people who 
look and talk and think like me, where is my allegiance, ultimately? And I want you to hear me because it could be very easy to misread what I'm saying in this. It is good to put down roots into the specific church community that God has you in right now, 100%. But it's good for reasons that are bigger than itself. See, being part of a church matters because it makes you part of the church, the body of Christ. Whenever we contemplate change or loss, and all change involves loss, it makes us ask, am I willing to remain in Jesus, regardless of which part of his family I'm rooted in at the time? Are we willing to keep pushing forward into the very meaning of our lives? When we loop back to John 17, Jesus' prayer for the church, he said back in verse 23 that it's when we Christians are deeply united with God and deeply united with all of each other, quote, then the world will know that you sent me, Father, and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is our mission as followers of Jesus. This is the meaning of our lives, to glorify God in Christ to make him known among all peoples, to proclaim and demonstrate his love. And Jesus himself tells us that the way, or one of the biggest ways to do that, is to be connected with the larger body of Christ in love. The same love that Paul said puts up with people and habits and cultural traits that we don't especially like. So, full disclosure, I love my current church community. I love that place. But I'll be real with you. There are things that I don't love about it. I don't love the fact that the church I've been part of for the past two years is full of self-described young professionals, uh, which it turns out is code for upper-middle-class people working white-collar jobs who would prefer to spend their time with other young professionals. I don't like that it's kind of homogenous. It's almost entirely white people with new cars and ski passes. I don't like that parking for the morning services sucks. I don't like that I'm pretty sure, other than me, there aren't any goths or any punks yet. But I'm going, and I'm investing in that community as much as I can, because by the grace of the God who is so much kinder than me, I'm slowly becoming somebody who lives out the teaching we see in Philippians 4.8, where it says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things and the God of peace will be with you. I'm slowly becoming less of a consumer and a nitpicky, prejudiced jerk who only sees what's missing from a church community and becoming somebody who's able to notice and thank God for everything that a church community gets right. It's not because of some secular humanist dogma about the power of positive thinking, and it's not because it makes my life better, although it totally does. It's because... I want to make our Father proud. I want him to see my life lived in church community and between all of the face palms that he just has to be doing up there. He's like, Adam, no, I love you, but what are you doing? Between all of those, I want him to see what the Holy Spirit is inspiring me to do. And I want him to say, that's my son. Good job, kid. This is what I have always wanted for you. And when you are loving life, with all the rest of my family, I'm glad. And when you kind of can't stand them, but you choose to bear with them in love, to put up with the things you don't like, and to remain 
deeply rooted, not just in me, but in that part of my family, I am so proud of you. So in a few minutes, we're going to take communion. This involves two symbols, bread and the fruit of the vine. If you belong to Jesus, if you are a branch that is rooted in his life-giving, crowded vine, this is for you. If you're not totally sold yet on letting Jesus run the show in your life, then we are actually really, really glad you're here. And please let this be the one part of tonight that you don't engage in yet, because it wouldn't make sense. Wait until it means for you what it means for us, which is a renewal of our commitment to be rooted in Jesus and depend on him and him alone for salvation from sin and from isolation for that matter, following him into abundant, eternal life as part of his body, the global church. So this is how it works tonight. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start the line, or actually if I could get... Isaac, would you help me with this? Great. Isaac and I are going to start the lines. Um, you come up, you break off a piece of the bread, which represents Jesus' body broken at the cross for us. And you dip it in the juice, non-alcoholic, FYA, uh, which represents his blood shed to save us. Then, after you take it, you're going to take the cup and the plate, turn around, and serve the next person in line. And tell them, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is his blood which is shed for you. I want to challenge you to do something different this time you come up to take communion, maybe different than you might usually do this. And I want to challenge you to, either before you come up to the line, actually the way we're doing it, it should be before you come up to the line, to just take a minute, to just slow down, clear your head, and just contemplate the beautiful, amazing plan that Jesus had for, has for us as members of him and members of everybody who calls on his name. Savor that plan of his. Rejoice.